I'm sure plenty of your listeners think shark finning, you know, associating that with evil, wasteful practices. But unless and until you can have a dialogue person to person about the issue, the importance of approaching um, somebody who does this for a living and work with them to figure out why they do it, how they can improve it, and, you know, what the trade-offs are and what the opportunities to supplement that economic opportunity for something else, then you, you won't gather an understanding about it. And yep. in, in Ecuador, just... That's Noah Oppenheim sharing his perspective on the human element behind fishing issues around the world. Much more insight today from Noah on managing our fish populations on this Ocean Life podcast with me, Josh Peterson. Born and raised in Maine, Noah Oppenheim has pursued a life on the ocean that has taken him from the beauty of the Galapagos Islands to the wide open expanses of the South Pacific and up to the rich waters of Alaska. On his way to building a career around the management of fish populations, Noah has been a scientific scuba diver, commercial fisherman, and federal observer on fishing vessels, developing a rich perspective on the challenges we face with managing our fish populations today. Now, nobody likes shark finning, but behind that is a human element of people doing so to make money to feed their families, just like all other fishing practices around the world. And Noah today sheds light on that for all of us. So while we're focusing on fish today, take a minute when you're done listening and check out a couple nonprofits doing good for fish populations. The World Wildlife Fund and Institute for Fisheries Resources linked in the show notes. And anytime you can, buy local caught fish. You know it's the right thing to do. I'm doing it. It tastes killer and my money stays close to home. So thanks so much for being here and thanks for sharing in the ocean life today with Noah Oppenheim. All right, Noah. Well, dude, thank you for taking time on a Wednesday evening after a busy day to chat with us, man. It's good to be here, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, for sure, man. You got a really cool kind of varied and broad background in the ocean, especially focusing around fish. You know, I mean, you you come from a you know a, a rich fishing history in the, in the state of Maine. You're educated in fisheries. You spent a bunch of time in the South Pacific doing all kinds of different stuff. You've been a commercial fisherman. You've been a fisheries observer watching, you know, on commercial boats. You've been on uh, staff for U.S. House of Representatives. And now, and there's probably 4,000 other things in between. And now you're also running two different commercial fishing associations, man. Yeah. <laughs> that- it's, been, it's been a trip. It's been a journey. Um, <laughs> but, and I'm, I've definitely become a generalist here. I mean, I, a little bit of everything. Every day is different. But it's it's such an interesting world and so much work. I mean, so much good work gets yeah. done. So much more needs to be done in fisheries and in seafood. So, yeah, uh, it's it's really a joy. It's awesome, man. Well, I can't wait to hear about all of it. Fish, fishing, fisheries. It's a big part of like my own core interest, obsession with the water. Also, having done some schooling and all that and all, everything else. So I'm kind of geeking on this one. So So let's do this, man. If you would, start us from the beginning, because um, I love the stories of how people got into a life of fishing and sort of obsession with fish in general. So take us all the way back to Maine, man, where you started as Grom as a kid and how you got into the whole thing from the start. Yeah, growing up in Maine <clears throat> really was the, the catalyzing moment for being a, an ocean person. Right. Spending time on the beach. I mean, literally one of my first memories is plopping my face down at the beach and chewing on sand. 
I mean, it, it, we, we had a boat growing up out on Casco Bay in Maine. We'd fish. Um, my grandfather was a huge fisherman and taught my brother and I how to fish uh, out on the ocean in Maine, but also actually, maybe paradoxically, out here in California. My Ooh. mother's family's California based. You know, my great grandfather worked for Standard Oil back in Eureka. Yeah, he actually founded along with his buddies this uh, the the Humboldt Bay Yacht Club, which was a big joke because they would like sell, <laughs> sell racing dinghies around the bay and cook crab and and oil drums on the beach and whatnot. My grandfather built a cabin in the Sierras of the '60s, and we would come out here in the summertime. He taught me how to fish rainbow trout, and that was it. I mean, that you know, plucking your first rainbow out yeah. of a stream. It is a trip for a kid and magical. Yeah, for sure. Maine was, was certainly formative. Maine's a really interesting place. Fascinating history. As you put it, 3000 miles of coastline. It's, it's an ocean state and you can't really get away from it. And I, I really fell in love with it. But what really was transformative was in high school, I got scuba certified, um, age 15, first time diving. And, and that was it. I mean, if, if you haven't been uh, diving, you just haven't experienced the ocean in, in three dimensions. And yeah. once you're immersed in that, it, there's no turning back. And that's what got me into this biz was was seeing fish. My very first dive, this sea robin, like a, a sculpted swam up it, it had been trained by this one instructor to hang out with divers whenever just holding that fish in my hand like all right all right that's what's up that's what's going on here wow and that that hooked you that experience being underwater seeing these things up close even touching grabbing was like that switch flipped yeah a whole new dimension to the to my experience in the world yeah and that's the and, best. Oh, I know. I know. I, I miss it. I, I don't get to dive enough out here. <laughs> and my, my gear, my dry suit and everything, a couple tanks sitting in the shed. I, I wish oh, I had yeah. more time. Yeah, same. I got a similar situation. I got a tank, an eight-year-old regular that's probably got spiders living in it and a bitch in dry suit that the seals are like the rubber's mm-hmm. decaying over time, you know? <laughs> no doubt. So then scuba, so you're already kind of fishing. Um, so then take us from there. I mean, you just got hooked. You're a kid, you're 15, you're teens, and what's kind of next? Sure, yeah. So I right after high school, I got my dive master cert and kind of flirted with the idea of spending some time working in in scuba you know dabbled with the notion of like going to tech diving school even kind of abandoned that with some some good sense coaching Mm -hmm. from (laughs) those who knew better (laughs) my elders but um diving and in marine biology was really appealing uh, I went to college at a place called Reed College. That's in Portland, Oregon. They don't have a marine science program, but that school ticked a few boxes. It was in a city, small liberal arts college, and within an hour of skiing. Another big part of my life. Yeah, um, it's a good spot. What, like yeah. Mount Hood right there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Got that cascade cement in my life. Oh, <laughs> um, and... That was a, a great few years there. I, I worked in a herpetology lab studying tadpoles. But then what really brought me back to the ocean side was a year abroad. I spent a semester 
in the Galapagos Islands. I had actually, I, I, I was like a week behind the deadline to apply to study abroad at college and realized I missed that deadline. So I walked into the study abroad office and I said, I, I know I'm late. I would like to scuba dive for a semester. What do you got? And he hands me a brochure for this program in the Galapagos and says, I think this is for you. I said, you're correct. And, Perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I went down there. Uh, it's a wonderful program uh, at the university based in Quito, USFQ. They have a field campus out on San Cristobal Island, the easternmost island in the Galapagos. Oh, man. And you to uh, out there actually after a few weeks of some some anthropological work on the coast. And that's that was an incredible experience, actually even before we went out to the islands, spending time in a small town called Porto Lopez. It's a real remote town. It actually, Anthony Bourdain went there and uh, ate some incredible seafood there. Yeah. Just absolutely delicious ceviche. Unbelievable. And these, these fishermen there are going out. This, this was mind blowing on, you know, 25 foot open top boats with, you know, an outboard and as much, you know, as many jerry cans of fuel as you can fit as, and going out as long as they could with, you know, food and water to last a couple of weeks and a a bunch of goats and they would fish and they would catch whatever was in the net and they'd bring it back. And, um, they would bring their boats ashore and, you know, the, the grouper guy would get the groupers and the, you know, the mullet guy would get the mullet and, the shark guys would get the sharks. That was a, a really interesting year politically in Ecuador. There was a presidential election on that year. Rafael Correa was running again, and he had determined that he needed to court the coastal vote. And so there was a discussion about how shark finning was going to be dealt with. It was There was a, a political dynamic between the conservation community and the government, which was working with fishermen and saying, we, we want to let you keep doing what you're doing, or they were saying that's what it would take to get their support, um, kind of an uproar. And meanwhile, we're, we're down there seeing all these sharks getting caught and uh, a lot of juvenile hammerheads getting pulled in. Yeah. Um, a lot of them go into the fin trade. And that, that was sort of this profound realization that fishing and High-level politics are, in many cases, totally intertwined. Yeah. Um, just seeing how that dynamic was shaping up, learning Spanish at the same time, which was a trip, <laughs> and uh, and seeing how these natural resource problems were playing out in really fascinating and unpredictable ways from, you know, in, in a rural community like Puerto Lopez. And then in the bigger industrialized fishing ports like Manta, we went down there and saw um, some of the same issues in, in more expanded scale, um, a lot bigger finning markets, big piles of, of white shark fins and, and mako fins and all that. And oh. sort of seeing it right there played out in front of you, you know, incredibly wasteful practice, obviously, and, and a huge detriment to the ocean, but it's people's livelihoods. And so yeah. seeing that complexity, thinking about trade-offs, thinking about opportunities that, that was, that was pretty formative. Um, this seems like that kind of puts you on a path to where you are today, which is kind of what you deal with is like that balance between the policy and the reality of livelihoods, people making a livelihood by extracting resources from the ocean, you know, fish. Right. Absolutely. And, and without question, 
there is a balance that is always needing to be struck. It, it, trade-offs, opportunities, and education, and outreach. I mean, nothing is black and white in in the context in fisheries. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about plenty of local examples here, but you know, I'm sure plenty of your listeners think shark finning, you know, associating that with you know, sort of evil, wasteful practices. But unless and until you can have a dialogue person to person about the issue, the importance of approaching um, somebody who does this for a living and work with them to figure out why they do it, how they can improve it, and you know what the trade-offs are and what the opportunities to supplement yeah. that economic opportunity for something else, then you, you won't gather an understanding about it. And yeah, yeah. In, in Ecuador, just as with California, top-down approaches to you know transitioning out of a wasteful practice or, or something that's deleterious into something else, those approaches will generally fail. Yeah. You've got to work with community and you've got to build trust and find opportunity to work together. And plenty of folks in Ecuador were getting there, but then suddenly this big political hammer came in and kind of just shifted the baseline totally. So it was, it was really interesting to see it. Yeah. On the islands, they were dealing with some similar issues with sea lions. I mean, it was just. Wow. Yeah, totally. So that was a nice, like, I mean, that was like your, uh, Trial, not trial by fire, but like you were thrown into just this world. You wanted to go scuba dive, sounded fun. You want to do some research. And all of a sudden, here you were just being exposed to, like you said, this interesting, the di- not dichotomy, the, the challenge of policy versus the reality of it all. And so was that something you got super excited about in terms of this is an interesting thing for me to pursue in life? Or were you just like, that's cool. I get it. Let me go figure out where I can go scuba diving some more, kind of thing. Because <laughs> you're still a young kid, you're like, you know, I'm right. guessing like 20 ish or something. You exactly. Know? So, yeah, I was 20 <laughs> there, so I mean, it yeah. wasn't it wasn't as if I had, uh, you know, a re- eureka. All right, I'm right. going to be a professional in this space. Yeah, moment. yeah. But right. it was formative, and without question, you know, over the course of that that period, it, it became clear that marine issues are more interesting when there's a human component and that coupled human natural system side of things was was far more fascinating so studying the impacts of extractive use and harvest and and the socioeconomics associated with forces that are factors that drive the desire to do that outputs etc you know it's all coming together in fisheries you know it, it all sorts of economic questions, micro, macro, sociology, of course, the biology and the, and the population dynamics of fisheries. It's all right there. And it's incredibly fascinating. Yeah, that's cool. So from there, you mentioned you kind of went deeper in the South Pacific, ended up where was it Fiji? Yeah, yeah, this was cool. So I mean, I, I spent the semester in, in, in this program at the university. And then I managed to convince a shark researcher that he should uh, take me on and let me stay as his scuba tech, sort of a scuba slave, nice. um, kind of managing a dive site or, or a, it was a, a sonar network site and doing some visual census work out there and doing a little bit of sort of informal TAing with the university for the next cohort of students coming through. Um, that was amazing. And, living in the Galapagos is, is incredible. I mean, a lot of people don't think of the Galapagos as a relatively densely populated place, but there are, you know, thousands of people living out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
is absolutely worth a visit, particularly, you know, before things deteriorate yeah. too much. Uh, but, you know, that aside, just what, what, a, what a year. But that project was nearing its end and it was sort of time to bounce. I met some New Zealanders who were sailing a 62-foot catamaran from mm-hmm. the Seychelles to Tonga. Oh, wow. It was a delivery that someone had gone in halvesies with a charter company on this boat. They were going to charter it out of uh, Tonga and on Vavau or the, the, the island archipelago of Vavau, and they needed crew. They got stuck. Ecuadorian customs had held up a part that was they needed from France, and uh, it was like a roller furl for one of the four sails. And they were stuck for six weeks waiting for this part to clear customs. Uh, I'm sure that they needed to pay a bribe that they. Yeah. Right. So finally, the part arrives, and uh, and by that time, the their fourth crew member who was slated to go with them had to go back to the states. Couldn't make the trip, so they brought me on, and we set off and um, spent 34 days sailing to Tonga, 5,400 miles. We didn't see land for 32 days, but we did see a whole ton of fish. And, wow, that's epic. You know, marine mammals and um, absolutely fascinating. But time, time does some funny things when you're on the water and uh, when you're sitting watch two hours on, six hours off, reading a lot of books and really, uh, truly enjoyed that experience. Um, just, just the journey itself, long distance sailing is wonderful. And yeah, that's cool. Yeah. For sure. Just, you could really kind of get in touch with your thoughts cause you have so much time to just uh, kind of reflect and stew on, you know, on, on ideas, thoughts, et cetera, that daily life is too hectic. You just, you know, don't have the, <laughs> the, the patience or the ability to sit down and focus like that. Oh yeah. It's super meditative. I mean, you, you read a ton, a lot of talk, a lot of philosophizing. Yeah. You get jacked, you know, cause you're just working the sales and like, you're not eating much. Um, except we did catch a bunch of fish just dragging a pink squid across the Pacific ocean. We caught nice. a bit of tuna, you know, we saw some really fascinating phenomena to, to this day. I can't explain. We were maybe a week out from Tonga and we're sit, we're, we're cruising through. Um, we had had a, a an easterly wind basically from, uh, a weekend throughout, we were just, we were cruising and we came in to a field of something. I'm guessing they were uh, some sort of jellyfish, but they were bioluminescent and they were about dinner plate size. And they, I mean, miles, like hundreds of miles of these things when really? the boat would come down off of a wave, it would cascade out luminescing, you know, for about 80 feet, hundred feet off of this. Wow. I mean, it, like straight out of avatar, like yeah. just the, the ocean was glowing around this boat. I mean, I, I don't think I've seen a more beautiful living thing uh, wow. than, that, than that. And, and, you know, who knows what it was just incredible some species of yeah. Nidarian of some sort, but um, saw the green flash. I mean, oh. you know, saw pods of killer whales, thousand hundreds more than a thousand miles from any land uh just it's it's a pretty busy ocean out there wow um 
That's so cool. You had the opportunity to do that because so much of our time is like near shore. You can go fishing, uh, you know, be in the ocean, but you're typically pretty close to, to do that where you're thousands of miles from kind of anything yeah. and seeing the animals that are also thousands of miles from anything like that's, that's pretty special to have the opportunity in 32 days of that. That's, that's like a dream, man. Yeah, it's real. And it's at the right pace too. Plus mm-hmm. you're at the right elevation. You know, there's the water. Yeah. You're right, right there. Oh, yeah. And you're yeah. moving at, you know, six yeah. knots. So you're, you're able to, you're able to feel that. But yeah. It was also pretty profound actually stopping in the middle of that. We were at least 750 miles away from any land. We stopped the boat. We, we got into a lull and, you know, just you're miles above the ocean floor. Yeah. away from the boat, diving down like 20 or 30 feet. And just thinking, I am as alone as I'm ever going to be in my yeah. life. Was, Sweet. Yeah, for sure. Liberating. That's so rad. So you have this rad adventure doing this stuff. And then, and not to cut your story short, but then there's this, you move forward back to like normal life, come back to school, you get your degree. And then you kind of enter this like different kind of world where you kind of into the policy part, working on as a staffer for U.S. House of Representatives. But there's also like you got into commercial fishing yourself, right? Yeah, that's right. So right after college, I needed a job and uh, was hunting job boards. One of the more high paying jobs that you can get that requires a biology degree is the Federal Fishery Observer Program. And um, there are observer programs all over the U.S., but the, the one that has the mo- had the most appeal to me, maybe it's not surprising, was the one in Alaska, the North Pacific Groundfish Observer Program. Um, you know, I needed a job and fisheries was always in the back of my mind, just sort of a fascinating thing to get into. I decided, you know, all right, I'm going to go for this gig. And so found myself in Anchorage, Alaska, training up for this program. And I just, I remember sort of, it was, it was, it was illuminating and fascinating to see the philosophical angle sort of that drives policy in the direction it does in, in federal fisheries. This was my first real experience with fisheries management in the United States. And arguably there's not sort of a more um, refined, I suppose is the right way to put it, large scale fishery management enterprise than the one that we've developed in Alaska. The fishery observer program is one of the major underpinnings of it. I mean, what we've done in Alaska, you know, we, we developed these fisheries when we kicked the foreign fleets, the foreign trawlers out of the U S exclusive economic zone up to 200 miles. And we, we borrowed a lot of information from the Russians and the Japanese um, but one thing that we implemented that they hadn't really been implementing was a scientific program with at-sea monitors quantifying the majority or in some vessels' cases, all of their catch, yeah. some sampling. But this, uh, during their training for the observer program, it was stated plainly, you know, this approach to fisheries is done by this agency because it is easier to manage fewer big boats and it is easier for us to take this sort of top-down technocratic approach with observers on the boats um, by design and we've this is speaking for the agency and their staff 
you know, we, we have determined that it is better for us and easier to sort of commodify the resource, privatize it. And in exchange for that, you know, that, that monetized, that fungible asset access to the public resource, uh, we demand that we be given access to the vessel. Right. And, and I was, you know, I was part of that and experienced it and was, was working on it in that enterprise. And, and it is efficient. It certainly works well. And the boats based out of Dutch Harbor, Alaska, you know, out in the Aleutians that I was working on are very impressive. You know, they, they are very good at harvesting those resources and, and a lot of very good fishermen operate on these boats. It was, it was definitely amazing to see, um, you know, just the variety of ocean life out there and what's being brought up in traps or trawl nets off of, off of the shelf there, uh, you know, being a, a few miles from the Russian border, the maritime yeah. border anyway, Yeah, um, you know, way out there. That's some but, rugged stuff. It is. I mean, I, you know, I, I will admit it. I, I don't think that it was that hard of a job. Yeah. You know, being an observer, you're, you're working maybe five or six hours a day. I mean, you're, you're on a 12 hour shift, but you know, you can sample quickly if you're good and enter your data and then do it all over again. It's pretty mundane work pays well, but you know, you're working maybe like one fifth as hard as the crew. Right. Um, right. So that, so that was sort of, that, that was, that meant something to me. I, I wanted more and it didn't take me too long to find a way to get more. I had, um, I'd gone to college with a buddy from, Alaska from Petersburg, who's, who's now a maritime attorney based in Seattle. And, um, his father operated a salmon gillnetter based out of a fly spec called Port Moeller fishing in Alaska management area M and, uh, was part of a group of captains that would communicate about needing crew every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I put my name in, in the hopper and, uh, and then thought nothing of it, you know, just said, okay, uh, I'm interested. After one of my observing contracts, I, uh, I, I was a little bit flush. We call it observer rich where you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're on a boat, you're not spending any of it, but you're making it. <laughs> you're making it. Exactly. And you're like, you're fresh out of college. You're like, ah, oh, yeah. $15,000 paycheck. And I didn't have any, have any uh, expenses, you know, for those contracts. So you're, you're like, all right, what am I going to do with this? And I sailing had been in the back of my mind. I, I was actually shopping for sailboats. And in fact, um, th- this was the spring of 2011. I made an offer on a sailboat um, that I had checked out. It was, it was a Lancer 36, great boat, you know, with a sailing or racing hull, um, you know, good layout, et cetera. The boat was in good shape. I made an offer on it and, and the seller told his wife that the offer was made and he hadn't told her that he had put the boat up for sale. Oh. <laughs> so, so she says that boat uh, gets sold and, and I'm out of here. And he, <laughs> he decided to save his marriage. So there's no, no sailboat for me. And then the next day, as I'm thinking like, Oh, that sucks. You know, let me find another one. I get a call from captain of a salmon troller or a gillnetter. Um, and he says, your name is in the list for crew. Can you be on a plane to Alaska in two days? And I say, all right, that, this is the right kind of coincidence. Yes, I'm in. Um, and so I went up, to, went back to Alaska, 
and uh, put on hold the the boat purchase mm-hmm. and fish that summer. And uh, that was that was amazing. I mean that that was a my first real introduction to true hard work, true independence, you know, with, with absolutely nothing except the tools and skills that you bring on the boat producing and, you know, making money and, you know, feeding people, feeding yourself. Um, and what a culture that the fishermen out in area M there, that's a really great group of folks. Um, uh, what a trip that, that year was a rough one for, salmon up in area and it's a, it's principally a, a sockeye fishery and they come in cycles etc but th- this wasn't the greatest year so yeah. we didn't catch as many fish as we would have liked but it was it was definitely i mean formative fascinating lucrative too yeah. and uh and definitely taught me what independence and and hard work really meant yeah. Was there any skepticism on the side of like the skipper of the boat because you'd been an observer prior or did that even matter? Did they even care about that? Not this guy, um, yeah. not the captain anyway, but um, you know, some other people I would say yeah. were a little right. skeptical. I mean, I, I approached it just saying this is, this is a job that I did straight out of college and yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I really did take a lot away from that and had already sort of thought to myself, well, being a fisheries observer meant something else in retrospect than I thought it Mm. was. I mean, I I saw firsthand this, this just massive bureaucratic system, which required this massive consolidation in order to function and then experience the polar opposite of that on the fisheries side. Yeah. Right. Two people on board, um, you know, catching as much as you can, uh, in the time allotted, very well managed fishery. Uh, about usually they're fishing forty eight hour openers with sixty hour pauses or forty eight hour pauses to let the fish go up once they hit their escapement target and you go back out again. And this uh, this was a, a different world in fisheries. Still managed certainly, but managed in a way that allows the kinds of operators that I personally was uh, far more attuned with. Yeah. Uh, than the large consolidated fishery system. And, right. And, and right. frankly, salmon is far more, uh, far more similar to the way that Maine has decided to manage its fisheries mm. than, uh, than, you know, the, the large, uh, factory trawler model. Not that there aren't yeah. trawler operators on the East coast, but my, my own personal experience in fisheries was much more on the lobster side of things right um then then on the, the offshore fishery or maybe yeah the new england, got it. New england side yeah so just one season uh on the boat working as a fisherman and then you kind of went to the next stage yeah that's right i i um you know right before that i had potentially set myself up on a course to be a, a yacht bum sailing around yeah for what would have i'm sure been a couple years at least but after the the salmon fishing experience i i spoke to enough people who had seen their mid-20s turn into their mid-30s very quickly (laughs) (laughs) as they tend to do (laughs) i i saw myself drifting in that direction and i decided that uh 
it might be time to uh, think about grad school. And so I, I got back in touch with a researcher that I had been, been working with at uh, Bigelow Labs in Maine, which is, uh, which is still there. This guy had moved over to the University of Maine, took on a, a research faculty position. And I said, hey, I'm ready um, to start up if you've got a place for me in your lab. This lab focuses on larval lobster population dynamics, first and foremost. A lot of scuba intensive on-the-water research, which is obviously appealing. And uh, Perfect. This is, this is Rick Wally's lab. Rick is now the, the director of the Maine Lobster Institute, still keeping his lab up in mid-coast Maine. And he took me on, uh, and I enrolled in a dual master's program, marine biology and marine policy, which was a perfect fit. Uh, it's a great program. You get to write one thesis focused on one question, the the social and the biological aspect mm-hmm. of a question in ocean policy and, and cool. biology. And my work was focused on lobster population dynamics. I wrote a forecasting model for lobsters and, and predicting landings based on juvenile population abundance and Econo- uh, environmental drivers, temperature and disease um, were built fundamentally into the model, predicting landings about five to seven years out. And on the social side, focusing on the epistemological questions around scientific information and how stakeholders even use or perceive science. You know, science is in general, I mean, I'm speaking incredibly broadly here, but science is designed principally to answer questions on its own terms. And the questions that fisheries stakeholders and and other stakeholders and and the public ask about those areas that science is investigating might be completely different, different spatial scales, different temporal Mm -hmm. scales. and that might be self-evident to some, but it's still a real challenge to reconcile the two and to either design science and scientific approaches to answering questions in the same frame as how management is conducted or how stakeholders think about their businesses or operate their fishing, yeah. their fishing vessels, what have you. It's a fundamental question. Um, which is really being brought to the fore these days in fisheries, as we realize that, you know, in many ways, our approaches to fishery management may be efficient, um, but they're leaving fishing communities behind. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the failure of our management institutions to ensure that we're supporting communities and fishing businesses as we also support fish populations and prevent overfishing, uh, rebuild stocks, et cetera, is one that I think is incredibly important and worthwhile to address. Right. So kind of like, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. I just gonna, it's, so it's like the, the human element, the hu- it's the human factor in the model, so to speak. I mean, I know it's probably not when you talk about like population change over time and forecasting, you have a model for that, but there's the general model around the human factor that's, as you mentioned, you're trying to incorporate that into the management practice, not just like how many are going to come back next year, what should we be able to catch, but there's like 
the impact of that on, like as you said, the community, the humans as well. As well. And so are you seeing that? And that's a lot of what I think you spend your time doing today with your the associations you manage. But do you see that sort of human, the human consideration to all the management practices? Is that much more common now than it was, let's say, 10 years ago or you know earlier when you started, started on all of this? Yeah, I think so. I think it's really coming to the fore, particularly these days. Uh, it was a major factor it, as the political fortunes of various sectors of fisheries act and wane. You know, in, in the 1996 Magnuson Stevens Act reauthorization, for example, the federal fishery policy framework, it was uh, heavily focused on community support and on ensuring that we can uh, preserve and protect small scale operators as well as. Uh, the larger industrial operators. Um, that, I would say, was the peak of that initiative. Um, and after that, it was much more focused on consolidation. The The notion of privatizing fishery resources was brought to the fore. And uh, under the National Marine Fisheries Service, under Dr. Jane Lumchenko and sort of the EDF model of consolidation and, and privatization uh, really uh, tipped that back towards um, the technocratic element um, you know and, and effort control was done differently it was it was suddenly about quantification uh, and not about harmonizing you know the, right. our, our management approaches with, hmm. with the, the stakeholder needs yeah harmonizing that's an interesting term that's a great way to say it it's like trying to keep everything all the different aspects of this like in harmony and just like all cool together. It's, it's all fishery systems are highly dynamic and chaotic yeah. and, yeah. and unpredictable. Um, and of course, as climate change continues to pervade and as uncertainty grows, those, um, those dynamics are going to shift further and further outside of our control yeah. to, to think that we can regain that control through more top-down approaches. I think right. Is, is foolish. I think we need to roll with the changes here. Yeah. Uh, and that Let me ask you getting about back to basics. Yeah. I have a question about that kind of, so the modeling aspect is interesting. Um, as so like, as you mentioned, like you can create a model based on statistics that will say, Hey, I, we're pretty sure that within some degree of confidence next year, the lobster will be that this population size or the fish the returns to be this. That's like the whole idea. Then you can kind of set the quota for who can go catch what around that. Now, those models, and this is back to like the climate change idea, if you believe that the oceans will continue to warm as we think they will and, you know, acidification and all the other elements, are you seeing the models now starting to take that into effect too? And are they able to? I mean, that's, that's the goal of ecosystem-based management fundamentally is to be able to add those variables that we know are heavily influential on the dynamics of fishery populations and incorporate them into our predictive capacity. I mean, that's what I worked on in graduate school. Uh, okay, uh, that's common practice then. <laughs> sure. I mean, the, the thing is, though, we haven't been very good at it. Um, there, there, there have been with... Um, there have only been a few medium to long-term forecasting models in fisheries that um, have really been robust over time to different changes. And that, 
changes in those ecological parameters that drive the system. And that's mostly it's thought driven by the fact that additional factors influence the system that weren't predicted in the initial uh, setup of the system or, or yeah. you know, reflected in the, in the parameterization of these models. And, um, you know, I, I think the model that I built for the lobster fishery may very well fall apart at some time it, it yep. at some point in the future, it happens to be performing very well right now. And the question you have to ask is what do you do with that information? Do you design the outputs of the model and the decisions that you make surrounding that model um, in order to support good decision-making by stakeholders and, and uh, managers, or do you say, okay, we're going to set up thresholds and tipping points based on our prediction of what's going to happen. And, and in fact, there's a, a really uh, profound example of, I, I would argue the wrong way to do this, uh, to use predictive information to make decisions that would impact fishery stakeholders. And that's in the Western Australia rock lobster fishery. They created a, a really elegant system to predict the dynamics of the populations there, a really uh, sophisticated modeling approach that could um, predict the dynamics of different iterative life stages in the animal. Um, but then a new factor reared its head ocean temperature sort of mm. a fundamental factor but it wasn't incorporated into their model that took the larval stage and predicted settlement in the future so suddenly the the scientific enterprise was broken right and the decision that the regulatory agency took was to and i'm oversimplifying to a degree here but basically eliminate 50 percent of the fishermen in the fishery. They decided um, over a, a very short period of time that there needed to be effort controls and it wiped out half the fishery. Um, you know, the, the resource was saved yeah. from, from over exploitation, but it also destroyed communities. Right. And, you know, just sort of this highly technocratic approach. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's a counterfactual in my mind for what exactly we don't want to do with predictive capacity. Right. I would argue that we can be responsible uh, in our ability to predict the future if we uh, work with stakeholders and if we design our, our scientific approaches to be aligned with the scale at which they operate. Got it. Got it, man. So then from all of that, I mean, then take us forward to today because there's so many different pieces you're talking about here and describe the, the groups you're working with and your role there and how you're trying to sort of help guide them through all of these different pieces that we're talking about. Yeah, totally. So I, I'm executive director of the Pacific coast Federation of Fishermen's associations, uh, which is a 501 C five trade association, uh, nonprofit trade association representing small scale commercial fishermen, from Santa Barbara to Crescent City, California. And it's the largest trade association of commercial fishermen on the West Coast by membership um, with a staff of five. So we are, we are <laughs> yeah, lean, nice. mean. lean and mean. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, but we certainly punch above our weight. Um, we were 
established in 1976, the same year as the Magnuson-Stevens Act was passed, um, and established largely because there was this new looming uh, massive policy change that needed to be responded to by fishermen, by stakeholders. And um, since then, PCFFA's fortunes have uh, uh, have expanded and contracted. We had one executive director from uh, 1976 till the, the day he died in 2015, Zeke Grader, mm-hmm. uh, the legend in fishery policy circles on the West Coast and nationally, really. Um, and, uh, you know, PCFFA has traditionally been uh, sort of on the on the left flank of fisheries nationally. It's, it's been an organization focused on supporting commercial fishermen and their livelihoods, maintaining that egalitarian approach, that, that sort of populist uh, approach to fisheries, as well as preserving and protecting the resources on which they depend. So we engage in a whole bunch of litigation. Uh, we're yeah. known for that. Right. We, we are highly active uh, in a whole bunch of Endangered Species Act and Clean Water Act litigation, public trust resources protection, uh, a lot of work in the Central Valley of California focused on ensuring that federal agencies, state agencies are maintaining the, the environmental qualities that perpetuate salmon populations and stop dewatering rivers and diverting yep. flows into Central Valley uh, agricultural corporate enterprises. So you guys are the voice of commercial fishermen who have a stake in certain areas of the West coast, basically. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. To preserving and defending the, the three pillars, as I put it, of commercial fisheries at a small scale on the West coast, which is salmon, dungeness crab and ground fish. Yep. And so day to day, I mean, you as a relatively young guy, I'm guessing like close to 30-ish, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less, looking at you, mm-hmm. fishermen, the, the folks that you're dealing with are, I'm guessing, older. They've been, they're salty guys. There's probably some open minds. There's probably some closed minds. And I'm sure you get a wide variety of perspectives and opinions who are your constituents. They're kind of like you're kind of serving them at the end of the day. And you have to kind of take this in and be able to, you know, respond and be their voice, represent them in all these different issues. And it is a trip being effectively a a, a spokesperson for an entire industry um, at age 32. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, But it's, it's been amazing uh, and heartwarming how welcoming this community has been. Um, you know, I, I bring a lot of energy to this job. I'm running around all over the place. That certainly helps um, you know, being in all places at once, um, lay, laying down a lot of miles, you know, heading to Sacramento and back or D.C. and back pretty free. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, they've been very welcoming. Uh, fishermen have known PCFFA for a long time. Their opinions about the organization uh, more or less were um, at least for the, for the older guys have been, uh, established for decades and, you know, love it or hate it. Uh, you know, our voice is an important one. Certainly we've been, um, you know, key and, uh, and instrumental in a lot of policy victories on behalf of fishermen in California. 
and uh, that that legacy, that track record continues. Um, got some big wins this year, um, but it's it's been pretty tough too. There's there's been a lot of uh, contentious engagement on water policy in California lately. Yeah, I uh, bet, man. Because yeah, there's the the continual drought and then out of the drought. And I have a friend who's at the fisheries, uh, Southwest fisheries science center. I'm sure you've interacted with him here in Santa Cruz and he's right in the middle of all the salmon stuff. So I hear uh, quite a bit about that. One of the things that I'm seeing that I think is cool and I'm curious to get your perspective is uh, kind of the, 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 the arrival of more local seafood programs, right? Where it's like you can go to your local wharf and go down to the fish market, but, a lot of people don't have a war for a pier nearby to go do that. But now there's, there's, you know, like real good fish is one in my area where you subscribe to this, you get a fresh piece of fish and then each week or every other week, and they tell you who caught it, how to prepare it. It's just, it really ties me as a consumer to the guy and, or gal on a boat out there fishing and catching, you know? So talk about that, that aspect of you're supporting the local commercial guys and our local commercial industry around how they could maybe better or differently, uh, you know, make money from their catch. First of all, I love that you uh, participate in Real Good Fish. Alan Lovewell is the man. Um, for for your listeners who don't know, uh, it's a wonderful, you know, sort of seat to table, doctor dish program. And, and showing all of us in the industry how feasible it is to do that kind of, you know, somewhat direct marketing. I, I say semi-direct because you're not going down to the boat, but yep. Alan is connecting the consumer with the, the, the community fishing association, like a CSA with an F um, yep. yeah. yeah, with, uh, with the harvester, with the individual. Uh, it's a, an incredible, way to move product in this marketplace. California is a great place for it because all of the ethics associated with local consumption, decreasing the supply chain impact from a carbon perspective and supporting your neighbor uh, are all values that are really held high here. Yep. Um, But in, in coastal communities all across the country, the, these kinds of models are being embraced and uh, you know, there are plenty of CFAs in towns on the East coast, uh, all up and down California, you know, Pacific Northwest. Um, it, it's, it's the future of seafood. And it also, I mean, it has such a wonderful buoying effect on other aspects of the, of the industry. If you have these high value, high visibility products out there in the marketplace. It also just brings a lot of awareness and attention to harvest practices and just the, the ins and outs of the industry more broadly in seafood. People start demanding local product. Um, You know, they know what it takes to harvest fish because they participate in CFA. And then when they go out to a, a restaurant, you know, they say, where's that fish from? Yep. You know, and that, that's a challenging question for a lot of places. Um, and if they get asked it enough, uh, you know, who caught your fish? Where? What gear? Um, is this really, you know, rockfish or is this tilapia? Um, 
you know, those questions get asked enough and they make different choices around procurement. And it's, it's a great direction for the industry to be going in. Yeah. I think that American seafood is a winner when, when that becomes more pervasive because, you know, by definition, if it's wild caught in the United States, it's sustainable. Certainly the, the vast, vast majority of harvest practices and management practices here are sustainable and are, are working yeah. contrary to sort of this doom and gloom narrative. Uh, and we need to be reintroducing and reacquainting American seafood consumers with this local product, um, with flavor, with, yeah. with sort of the, 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 culinary practices traditional and new that uh we always associate with seafood but i mean there's there's just so much going on in that space so many amazing chefs really embracing these ideals and and creating real amazing culinary experience yeah i love it i mean it's interesting because me being like a fish guy again i i did I, my bachelor's degrees in fisheries i've lived in Santa Cruz my whole life i fished i had a boat i, I mean yet I was exposed to new, new things I've never had. Like I had black cod. I never, mm. I've never, I don't even think seen it. Maybe is it also called sable fish or is that okay. something different? Yeah. yeah. So maybe, but like I had black cod, never had it until I got it in the, in from real good fish and it's insanely good. And yeah. it's like my new favorite fish, but I was just like, wow, I, I had no idea that was right out here. Like a couple miles seriously away from where I'm sitting now, that mm. fish it's been bringing, it's brought in every day and I just had no idea. So the ability for these types of programs to expose you, a local and a coastal community to new things, you know, like eating sardines, like people don't do that, but you can, and they're killer when you prepare them correctly, you know? So there's just a lot of neat, your, your world can be really open for folks listening and everybody to like new other things in the ocean that you're not snacking on today. I mm -hmm. love it. Yeah. And, and for even the more undesirable fish, um, you know, creating new markets using those same visions for sustainability uh, is, is excellent. There's some great stories here in the Bay area, Kenny Belov of fish restaurant in Sausalito. They have a wholesaler called two by C. They bought a, a, a pin boning machine and sent it to Kentucky and they're paying fishermen to pull invasive Asian carp out of the rivers there. They're filleting it and they are selling it for, you know, very reasonable prices yep. to school lunch programs. That's cool. And just get the bones out because things are yeah. bony as hell. But when they the are. bones out, it's great protein. Yeah. You know, eat your invasives. And, yeah. uh, you know, some great, That's cool. you know, I, I hear about the, the lionfish programs down in the Caribbean. Yeah. But we're, we're doing it here too. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of creativity out there in the market. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fish that you would not think to eat is actually damn good. Um, you know, carp tacos. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> Are they? You've had them. I have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's awesome, man. Well, no, man. I want to thank you for for sharing so much with us. And again, we could probably spend multiple hours talking about all this stuff. And I got to pull myself back from all these questions I have to get your perspective on the state of the fisheries and everything in our local waters. But I do appreciate all that you've done in pursuing, you know, a calling and a passion for, for protecting the resource, but it's also cool. Like I like your perspective on sort of this, the harmonizing the balance between, you know, the actual resource to fish and the people on the water and the policy, you know, it's an interesting thing. Cause it's something that 
that model, what you describe, it's it's not just for fisheries. It's like for everything we're talking about these days in terms of protecting the environment, uh, et cetera. So thanks for the perspective. Thanks for sharing, man. It's been, been awesome. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I wish we could keep going. Um, it's been a, a pretty rad ocean life. It's going to keep going. Solid, solid. We'll have to do it over a couple beers in person next time. Cheers to that. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Noah. Take care, man. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. If you like what you heard, would really appreciate you sharing the podcast with people you know who might enjoy the stories that we hear and the guests we have on. And of course, even better, reduce plastic, do something good for the ocean and for each other. Thanks again. We'll catch you on the next episode.